Made Visible helps people with invisible illnesses feel seen and heard. It provides a platform for people who seem fine but aren't to share their experiences. It also helps to create a new awareness of how we can be sensitive and supportive to those with invisible illnesses. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in today. This episode is brought to you by Abridge. Abridge is a free app that helps you capture the details of your healthcare appointments so you can review them anytime. Today's guest is someone who was my client at my previous job in event production. Zach Iskell is the founder, chairman, and former executive director of the Headstrong Project. He's here to talk about veterans with PTSD and removing the stigma of getting help. Welcome, Zach. Hey, thanks for having me here. So happy to have you here. We met back in 2013 when I produced the gala for your organization, Headstrong Project which was two years old then. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and where you're from? Yeah, sure. So first off, I'm going to apologize because I have a cold, which is why my voice sounds the way it does. So founded an organization called the Headstrong Project about seven years ago in 2011. My story and sort of the story of the organization, I was in the Marine Corps for about six and a half years, seven years, and was in one of the hardest hit battalions of the Iraq War. So I was in 3rd Battalion, 1st Marines, uh, we fought in the Second Battle of Fallujah, which is the biggest battle of the Iraq War, biggest battle the Marine Corps fought in since Way City in 1968 in Vietnam. And uh, in that battle, we lost 33 Marines and over half the battalion, about uh, 580-something men were wounded. And so came home from that. Fast forward 2011, I'm out for drinks with my battalion commander, a guy named Colonel Willie Buell. And uh, we had just had our, I think it was our 14th, 15th, or 16th suicide in the battalion. A young uh, former sergeant came home, apparently kissed his wife and kids at the dinner table, went upstairs, and they heard a gunshot. And so, you know, this had just happened. Colonel Buell and I were talking, and I've never seen him look scared. And he looked worried and concerned about what were we going to do for our Marines. And look, we'd now been home from that deployment for six years, seven years. And, you know, Colonel Buell's the type of guy that, you know, his sort of MO is you take care of your people. And even when he relinquished command of the battalion, he never relinquished command of those responsibilities. And so, you know, I told that story a couple of days later to um, two investors, friends of mine, very successful guys, a guy named Al Rabel and a guy named Dave Petruco. And had breakfast with them, told them that story. Al Rabel sort of asked a simple question. He just sort of said, I don't understand why veterans can't get the type of mental health care that I can get. If an Al Rabel or a Dave Petruco or any really successful finance man or woman in the city can see the top psychiatrist in the city tomorrow morning, regardless of how busy they are, what their rates are, if they take insurance or not, why can't a veteran see the same type of doctor? I didn't have an answer to that question, but I knew somebody who did. Uh, her name was Dr. Ann Beter, is Dr. Ann Beter. So She's an old family friend. I've known her since my bar mitzvah. Her husband and my dad were very close friends. They went to college together and went out, had another breakfast with Dr. Beter. I didn't know mental health care was a real thing that worked. I didn't know you could treat mental illness. I didn't know PTSD was treatable, but I knew we needed to do something. And so I asked that question to Dr. Beter and with the sort of generosity of Dave and Al and and a group of other friends, we raised about $250,000 in 2011 funded a small program at Cornell Medical Center here in the city to provide treatment to veterans in the city. And so 
we did it with stipulation the treatment had to be cost-free, bureaucracy-free, confidential, and most importantly, had to be effective. And over the course of a few years, we started to realize that, yeah, this is treatable. The people we're treating are getting better. And slowly, we started to grow outside New York City. We're now in 25 cities. We're managing the care for about 800 veterans at any given time. We've treated over 1,500. And we've shown that if you have the courage to get help and you get the right help, hidden wounds you can completely recover from. So my, that's sort of my story in a nutshell, story of the organization and, and why we founded it. So incredible. I didn't know that backstory to Anne and that you previously knew her. She's oh, yeah. amazing. And obviously, I dealt with her in producing the event years ago. But wow, what a woman. Oh, she's phenomenal. <sighs> incredible. Very lucky to know her. So she was already affiliated with Wild Cornell. So Dr. Beter is a professor of medicine, psychiatrist, MD. She also runs a number of public health care programs. And uh, it's funny, one of the jokes about is, so she's built a number of national public health programs, mainly focused around addiction, methadone. She even invented a cocaine vaccine. Um, I mean, she's brilliant. Uh, she has a line of soaps and perfumes that the pheromones make you feel happier. Oh, my um, God. So she's a, she's, a, she's a hoot. She's from Nebraska, salt of the earth, wears wild socks. Um, <laughs> and it's like one of the great honors and pleasures of my life is I get to work with her. She's just, she's a lot of fun. But so Dr. Beter had married my, one of my dad's best friends from college. I knew her throughout my childhood. When I was in the Marine Corps, if I ever had somebody who had a problem, marriage, substance abuse, alcohol, she'd always be my first call. I called her at like 3 a.m. once from Singapore because I had an issue with the Marine and was just the guy that was lucky enough to know her at that time when we, we needed that help. So huge. And so what made you think that this was the mission that you wanted to start tackling? I mean, obviously, you had this personal story, but why is this what your career turned into? Um, <laughs> Big question. It didn't. Like, if you asked me the day before I saw Colonel Buell, what are you going to be doing with your life? This was not in the cards. If you asked me the day after I saw Colonel Buell, this it still would not have been the cards. But, you know, I think I was very, very lucky. Um, the guys that sort of mentored me and trained me and, and the leadership I had in the Marine Corps. And so when I was going through infantry officer training, which is one of the most difficult courses in the Marine Corps, it was late at night. We just did this really awful uh, hump, which is like a imagine carrying like, you know, 130 pounds of gear on your back at night up and down hills and going at a pretty rapid pace. And so we finished this exercise. We're sort of waiting for the trucks to pick us up. And uh, our instructor, who was a guy named John Maloney, who was killed in Iraq in 2005, sort of pulled us in and started talking to us. And he just, he asked us a question. He said, what comes first, your mission or your Marines? This was in the summer of 2002. We all knew we were going off to war. The country was at war now. And we all knew that that question, at some point in time, we're going to have to make a decision as to whether or not the mission matters more than our Marines' lives, right? Are you going to put your Marines in a position where they're likely going to get killed in order to achieve some mission? And we debated back and forth. And, you know, some guys thought Marines, you never sacrifice a Marine's life. Other guys think, you know, you got to accomplish the mission. And we sort of were arguing back and forth. And then one of us just asked uh, Captain Maloney what he thought. And he was sort of a legendary guy. He was a prior enlisted sergeant, had been the first Marine Division Marine of the Year, then commissioned, was very well respected throughout the ranks and throughout the Corps. And he just said, I think that you take care of your Marines and they take care of the mission. And, you know, then I got to serve under guys like Colonel Buell 
you know, the NCOs that I had, guys like Staff Sergeant who just retired as a Sergeant Major Fox or Sergeant Major Castle, these are all folks who really emphasize that your job is to take care of your people. You take care of your Marines. And, you know, like I think when I had that drink with Colonel Buell, you know, that doesn't end just because you're no longer in the Marine Corps. That doesn't end just because you're no longer part of that unit. And that's why it, it was there was a need and we had the means to address it. And, you know, unfortunately, it is an epidemic. I mean, we're losing, you know, over 17 veterans a day to suicide. Um, it's a national epidemic, but it's also, you know, if you speak to any veteran, I guarantee you every veteran knows somebody who's died by suicide. It's something that is addressable and it's treatable for the most part. And so, like, how did it become what I'm doing now? Like, that's sort of how I sort of fell into it. I love that. And so... You mentioned it being cost-free and bureaucracy-free. Why was that such a priority for you? So the VA, which has worked to improve and has gotten better in a lot of ways, but it's also very, very difficult to access care at the VA. And so I think we just wanted to make it as easy as possible, right? Like if, if I'm going to go see a doctor and I am of means and I just call the doctor, I tell him when I'm coming in, I come in. And like, it's that simple and it should be that simple. And especially with mental health care, there's already so many, you know, barriers to people getting help, right? There's the stigma. And I think even more than the stigma, there's a lot of ignorance around mental health. You know, a lot of folks, they sort of bunch every potential diagnosis of mental illness sort of together. They don't understand that PTSD is something very specific. It's like comparing, you know, melanoma to a broken ankle. These are different things that require different types of treatment different types of doctors sometimes. And so for us, it was just important that we reduce the barriers. And we saw bureaucracy was a major barrier. Concern over confidentiality was a major barrier. Cost was a barrier. So let's remove those and just make this as simple as possible. So when somebody is ready to reach out, it's frictionless. And how does that program work? Is it a certain amount of time, a certain number of sessions? Nope. Is it all talk therapy? Yeah, great question. So the only thing we require from somebody who we're helping is that they reach out themselves. So a lot of times we'll get a call from a spouse, a parent, a sibling, a friend who says their person needs help. Can you help them? Yeah, we can help them, but you need to get them to reach out to us. Go to getheadstrong.org. There's a simple form on the site. You just click get help. You fill out. It's like five fields, like name, contact information, why you're reaching out. It takes 10 seconds. Once they fill that form out, that goes to our team at Cornell. We have a number of intake clinicians there who then call that person. They get on the phone. They do an on-the-phone intake. They spend about 30, 45 minutes speaking to them. And, and really, there's sort of two things we want to do during that call. Number one is we want to make sure they're not a threat to themselves or somebody else. Number two, we want to understand why they're reaching out. What's the problem that they're trying to solve? And that sort of matters more to us than the diagnosis. It's okay, you can't sleep through the night. All right, we're going to figure out a way to make you sleep through the night. Okay, you're having an issue with your wife. We're going to figure out how to solve that issue with your wife. You having panic attacks or anxiety or you're self-medicating or you're abusing drugs and alcohol, whatever it is, what's the problem that we're trying to solve? Once we identify what the problem is, they then schedule a time for them to see a psychiatrist MD in their community. They then do an intake with that psychiatrist, usually one or two sessions. They get an initial diagnosis, make sure they're a good fit for outpatient care, and then we plug them into an individually tailored treatment program. So we have uh, now a network of about 250 clinicians in 25 cities. 
those clinicians, the ones we recruit, are trained in a variety of modalities. So they have 10 plus years of experience. And we also make sure that we have geographic diversity so that it's as easy as going to the gym and you don't have to drive, you know, three hours across Houston to get to your clinician, but you can get there within 20 minutes. And then also diversity of skills. So they have 10 plus years of experience, trained in a variety of modalities. Most, all of them are trauma trained, but we have uh, sex counseling therapists. We have drug and alcohol specialists. We have marriage specialists. We have group therapy specialists so that we can then also find the person that's the best fit for that, that veteran. Uh, then they start seeing their clinician and then we pay the bills. So the clinician then invoices us. We pay the clinician to see them. We do require that the clinicians send their notes to a HIPAA compliance system to our team at Cornell and that they also participate in monthly case conferences with our team at Cornell. So we have accountability of outcomes. We can manage each case to ensure that the folks we're paying to get better are actually getting better. And then they're off the races. Most people usually are treated for about six to eight months. There's no limit on the number of sessions. We treat them until they're better. We have folks that have been in care for a couple of years. We have folks that have been in care for a couple of months. And the average is out usually at about six to eight months of treatment before folks are better. And what kind of results are you finding? Uh, remarkable. It's 80 to 90% across the board in terms of you know, reduced panic attacks, reduced suicidality, improved sleep, reduced drug and alcohol use, better employment. You know, sort of there's 11 quality of life measurements that we use to track progress in addition to some of like the more um, scientifically accepted sort of standards that we use to track the progress of folks in the treatment program. And it's going really, really well. You know, and I think one of the things that we've learned is PTSD is 100% treatable. Wow. I feel like that's not a known thing that's put no, out there. So why do you think that is? The ignorance around mental health care has probably caused more suicide than the ailments itself. And I think it's because most people are not educated about mental health care. I think it's something that's not talked about. It's also not something that is understood that well. I think that's probably why. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Abridge. Abridge is a free app that helps you capture the details of your healthcare appointments so you can review them anytime. With Abridge, you can record conversations with your doctor and share the recordings with family, caregivers, friends, or anyone who you want looped in on your health. Abridge's technology highlights and indexes the key medical points in your conversations, which is what makes it different from the recording app on your phone. As someone who works with a team of doctors and has lots of appointments, I love this concept of the app. There have been so many times when I've walked out of an appointment only to realize that even though I was paying attention, I can't totally remember everything my doctor said. I love that Abridge solves this problem and helps people be their own advocates and make the most of their doctor visits. To download Abridge for free, go to abridgeapp.com slash made visible. That's a bridge spelled A-B-R-I-D-G-E app.com slash made visible. A bridge app.com slash made visible. And now back to the show. Have you seen suicide rates go down? We have not had any suicides in our program. That's huge. Um, and so we've unfortunately had one person who dropped out of our program, went through uh, in and out of some different inpatient care who was lost to a drug overdose, but we've treated over 1,500 veterans in seven years with zero suicides. Wow, that's massive. I mean, yeah. that's a huge accomplishment. I hope you feel that. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, what is the most challenging aspect of helping veterans and going through this program? So the most challenging part is by far getting people to just step forward and get into therapy. Uh, once they do that, it's easy. We have a over 70% sort of treatment adherence rate, which is usually about 30 to 40% for most other programs. So the, the easy part is ironically the treatment. The harder part is getting people to step forward and get treatment. Fundraising is always a bear. That's always hard. We're organically doubling in size every year. So we need to double our fundraising every year. And that's, that's a heavy lift. We are in the process of exploring sort of sustainable sources of funding through state partnerships, like with New York State or Colorado, Virginia, California, also possibly with the VA. But it's, it's very difficult to sort of navigate that and also to figure out how do you do that in a way that remains frictionless for the client. And how do you market this and get veterans knowing that this exists? So number one source of folks in the program is veterans in the treatment program referring other veterans. Number two is referrals from other veteran organizations. The VA sends us a lot of folks. We get clients from Wounded Warrior Project, Mission Continues, Team Rubicon, Team RWB, sort of everybody, IEVA, they all refer folks to us that we treat. And that's sort of the two biggest ones. And we've intentionally stayed away from marketing marketing simply because we don't have sustainable funding yet. Do you find that veterans are willing to share that they've gone through this program with other people and are sort of coming out about what they've experienced after going through the program? Yeah, it's interesting. So one of the things that happens is a veteran will reach out to us and then during the intake call or whenever, they'll want to guarantee that it's confidential, that nobody's going to know about this. And then after a couple of treatment sessions, you know, the panic attacks go away and a couple more, they're sleeping through the night. And then after six, eight months, they're back to the best version of themselves. And usually at that point, they won't shut up about the fact that they've gotten, you know, treated. And they want all their buddies to know. They want all their friends to know. They want to tell their story. And I think that just, it also says something about the community is that these are real servants, right? These are servant leaders. These are people who want to serve their community. And, you know, when they find that this really works, sort of the stigma goes away and they just want people to know that this is real and this is effective and this is who I was six months ago and this is who I am today. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the case with therapy in general. When someone is invested in it, whether it's related to vets and PTSD, once you see the benefits of it, you're willing to sort of go and share and tell people that you're doing this. Yesterday, I had therapy myself, and then I had a meeting afterwards, and I found that I kept saying to the person I was meeting with, while well, I was just in therapy, and I emailed her this morning, I said, I'm really sorry. I said that so many times. I said, this is why I go home right after right. therapy and not have a meeting yeah. after therapy. And she said, it's fine. I'm in therapy. I love it. I talk about it all the time. And so I think there is such a stigma around getting help and taking care of yourself what do you think that people can do, veteran-specific or in general, to sort of help remove that stigma? So I think one is tell their story, right? So, you know, talk about it and normalize it. And then two, I think there just needs to be more work done to educate folks on mental health, what mental health is, the difference between different diagnoses. You know, you'll have somebody who is suffering from manic depression or is bipolar or somebody who's schizophrenic. And these are very different diagnoses than PTSD or from each other, right? And I think it's getting people to start thinking about mental health that way and then also understanding that 
you know, treatment is a real thing. Absolutely agree. So your role has shifted over the years with the Headstrong Project Mm -hmm. as you've built other businesses. Can you talk a little bit about what your role is now with Headstrong and obviously these other businesses because they all relate to vets? Yeah. So, you know, I started as the executive director and chairman. And then as we were growing and my other businesses were sort of concurrently growing, it just became a lot to manage. And so two years ago, we brought in a uh, full-time executive director, a great friend of mine named Joe Quinn, who served in the Army, went to West Point, did uh, a number of tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, had been part of another veteran organization called Team RWB, was really well-known in the community, was really passionate about the work that we were doing, was connected to it personally. And so he came in as executive director, and I now am chairman of the board. I work mostly on fundraising and strategy. Uh, I still do a lot of work with partnerships and things like that, but primarily focused on board management, board development, strategy, setting goals, and then fundraising, fundraising, fundraising. And your other businesses are? Yeah. So I run a, um, I run a group of companies called Grid North that uh, we build businesses, acquire businesses that sort of serve and support the military community. So we have a job site where we help companies hire military talent called Hire Purpose. We actually this year launched a vertical to help companies hire women. So we're branching out a bit from veterans. Uh, we have the largest media company serving the military community called Task and Purpose, where we spend a lot of time telling stories that are just you know important for the, the community. So like this year, our writers uh, sort of broke a story on um, changes to the tax code that affected Gold Star Widows. So Gold Star Families, so Gold Star Families, because of some changes to tax code, got bumped up to like a 30 to 40% tax bracket. And so in the recent national defense uh, authorization, they reverted back and sort of changed that the widow's tax. So we, we had an impact there. There's a doctrine called the Ferez Doctrine that we've been taking on. The Fres Doctrine, essentially, if you suffer from medical malpractice in the military, you cannot sue the VA or the DOD for medical malpractice. And, you know, what happens to a lot of families is they'll lose their breadwinner, right? They might get some benefits, but nothing substantial, and there's no recourse for them. There's also no justice. And so also in this year's NDAA, they sort of moved, uh, we're sort of getting there, but now they can basically petition the DOD, but they still can't take it to civilian courts. So there's still more work to be done there, but at least it's, there's some recourse, but there's more to be done there. So we tell stories that sort of are, you know, we try and entertain the community, we try and inform them, and then we also try and have impact with our journalism. And then we also have an events business where we do events around the country for military families. So, uh, yeah. You're not busy at all. Nope. Um, it's interesting you mentioned community because I feel when we were working together, I was also simultaneously working with Team Rubicon doing an event mm-hmm. for them. And I found so quickly how much of a community you all have as veterans and how yeah. everyone truly has each other's back. And it's not really a competitive industry, even if you're doing similar stuff. And they're doing amazing work. You're doing amazing work. There's something really special about that. And I feel like it's really unique. Yeah, well, it comes, I think, just from shared experiences. So where can people learn more about you, the Headstrong Project, and your other businesses? Yeah, so you can go to uh, getheadstrong.org to learn more about the Headstrong Project. And you can go to taskandpurpose.com to learn more about Task and Purpose or higherpurpose.com to learn more about Higher Purpose. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do any of this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com and follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor, Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer, Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music, and Amanda Grissio for the design. 